Death in Denmark. Brought to you by Crime Monthly Magazine. Episode 2. The Missing Family. Please note that this episode contains disturbing details of real-life murder cases. Some voices have been recorded by actors. If I say the name Peter Lundin, everyone in Denmark will immediately know who I'm talking about. Most Danes have at least heard about this man and the crimes he has committed. Some of the crimes we will look closely at in this episode. As a crime reporter for almost 20 years, I've often come across Peter Lundin. I've never met him in person, but I've talked to several of his girlfriends, wives and his father. A few years ago, I interviewed a close relative of some of his victims. Emotionally and with pain in his voice, he explained to me how awful it had all been. How much grief and frustration the killings have cost the family and friends of Lundin's victims. How hard it is to be without them for the rest of their lives. And last but not least, how unbearable it was not having someone to say goodbye to in church or bury in a grave. In this episode, we look closely at the three killings that shook not just the victim's family, but everyone in Denmark in the year 2000. And some of the experts who worked on the case will tell us more about the extensive investigation. The experts in this episode are former chief of the Homicide Investigation Unit at the Copenhagen Police, Detective Superintendent Jens Müller Jensen, Crime Scene Investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen, Forensic Pathologist Hans Peter Hogan, and Lawyer Mette Gritsdage. My name is Stine Bolder. Welcome to the podcast Death in Denmark, told by some of the professionals who were closely involved with the case. The letters are written in caps with a blue ballpoint pen. The 24-year-old man who's about to lock himself into the house is puzzled by the note, even though it's in the middle of the summer. He hadn't heard that his stepmother and two little brothers had any plans to travel this year. Usually he is in contact with his family every day, but now he hasn't heard from them in two weeks. He's worried. Nervous and a bit anxious, he enters the house. Jens Müller Jensen has worked for the Danish police for more than 37 years and is a former chief of the Homicide Investigation Unit at the Copenhagen Police. Detective Superintendent Jens Müller Jensen was not directly associated with the Lundin case, but knows the case in depth from media, court transcripts and colleagues. In the summer of 2000, a young man suddenly found that he couldn't reach his stepmother and his two half-brothers. He had gone to their home in Rødovre, a city not far from Copenhagen, where the 36-year-old woman lived with her two children aged 10 and 12. He hadn't seen them for a week since the 15th of June. However, there was no answer, just a note on the door explaining in bad Danish 
that they would return on the 28th of June. When he came back on the 3rd of July, they were still not home. So he contacted the police, and when the police found out that a 36-year-old woman was missing with two little boys, and no one in the family knew where she was, they immediately took the situation seriously. The police started asking relatives and friends if they knew anything about their whereabouts. But no one knew anything, and no one had heard anything about any holiday plans either. When we spoke with the man who had reported them missing, he mentioned that the woman had recently gotten a new boyfriend and that no one in the family really knew him. There had been rumors in the family that he had once killed a police officer and that he used to live in the US and had recently moved to Denmark. He didn't speak Danish fluently and spoke English most of the time. Despite the rumors, the new boyfriend was described as a nice guy who treated the woman very well, but lately there had been some conflict between them. This information led the police to investigate the woman's house in Rødovre. The house was located in a nice and quiet residential area. But though everything seemed perfect from the outside, the officers that entered the house could immediately see that there were signs in the house that suggested a criminal act had happened. When they stepped into the hallway, they saw something that looked like blood and everything was covered in plastic as if someone was renovating the house. But there were no signs of the woman and her two sons. As an investigator in this situation, it's quite difficult to call something a murder when you don't have a body. Or to call something a triple murder when you don't have three bodies, as was the case in this situation. Since nobody could get in contact with the woman and her two sons, not even through close family members or friends, you start to get a bit nervous about the situation and what could have happened to them. When questioning people in her social circle, we realized that the couple had had some problems in their relationship. There had been disagreements, fights and minor violence. The last day they were seen alive was for a get-together at the boys' school ahead of the summer holidays. At the get-together, several people had seen them arguing and generally not looking that pleased with each other. Obviously, you follow up on this kind of information. When you then have crime scene investigators find signs of blood, or at least find something that reacts as blood, you just know that given all this information, you need to start a thorough investigation of the crime scene. The crime scene investigators are some of the first to arrive at the scene when police have suspected a crime has been committed. They are the ones who decides when enough evidence has been collected so that others can enter the area. All the evidence must be found and secured, and it was a huge job in the house in Rodon. One of the crime scene investigators on the case at the time was Bent Hytholm Jensen. I was contacted by the local police as they needed assistance in the case. They had a feeling something suspicious was going on and they needed our help with the investigation. The police explained that a woman and her two children had disappeared and they were investigating her house. So I sent two crime scene investigators to the scene. The local police investigator at the crime scene was familiar with the forensic and knew at first sight that something was wrong. He had been led into the house and could confirm that there were bloodstains on the floor at the entrance, which my colleagues could confirm when they arrived, and they agreed it looked suspicious. 
the entire ground floor was covered in plastic as if someone was renovating. It was late in the evening, so we decided to close the house down and start the next day. In the morning, we sent two CSI teams to the house. We decided to split the crime scene into two, the ground floor and the basement. As the day progressed, the two teams found more and more suspicious things, such as several items with blood on. They also found small parts of what they believed was human tissue in the downstairs bathroom and some blood stains. So there was a lot of evidence to proceed with. We decided together with the local police to expand the force the next day with one more CSI team. It was during the summer holidays, so it was actually really hard to find enough people. Nevertheless, we got a team out there that was going to take care of the outside areas. There was a garden, a garage, and an outhouse, which we also wanted to investigate. I was sitting in the department, and I was very curious what was happening out on the crime scene. So I took a car, and uh, I visited my colleagues. And uh, I was at the place when they opened uh, the garage door, and it was no problem. We could see in the same moment that uh, something was very wrong because we could see small parts of uh, human flesh. We thought it was on, on, on the door inside. So afterwards, they were taking all the things out of the garage, and, uh, and there was a lot of evidence. With those findings, the investigation took off, of course. My colleagues started slowly clearing the garage. They quickly found that there was a lot of parts of human flesh and tissue. And as I remember, they also found a couple of teeth as well. There were marks in the concrete floor, possibly made by an axe and an ankle grinder, which were some of the more crucial pieces of evidence in this case. Inside the house, the crime scene investigators has also found tissue up and down the walls in the downstairs bathroom. So, with all these findings, there was a lot of evidence suggesting that the woman and her two boys had been killed in that house. When you say there were tissue, we know what blood and blood spatter is, but what is human tissue? Yes, what should we call it? Small parts of human flesh? If you have been using an anchor grinder to cut into human flesh, it will automatically throw tissue somewhere and it will leave blood spatters as when you stab with a knife or strike with an axe. What if the perpetrator has washed away the blood and cleaned the house or the crime scene? What would you do then? If you have a feeling that the perpetrator has cleaned the scene of the crime, you have the opportunity to use luminol, which is a chemical liquid that you can spray on any surface where you think blood or other fluids have been cleaned up. The luminol connects with the iron in the blood and lights up for a short time. So it's important to be ready with a camera if you want to photograph it. Besides the luminol, there are different methods to test for blood. But it's important to remember that the CSI only can tell that it reacts as blood. It is the DNA lab who has to confirm that the sample actually is blood. In this case, many pieces of evidence were secured at the crime scene, and they were taken back to the lab where tissue and other samples were passed on to the DNA lab for further testing. Three people had disappeared. The strange note on the door made the relatives nervous. 
the forensic evidence showed signs of blood in the house and the findings of human tissue and marks on the floor indicated that something horrible had taken place. The theory was that they had been killed and dismembered, but where were their remains and who was behind this atrocity? The police worked night and day to solve the crime. Tuesday, July 4th, 2000. Four officers knock on a door in the small suburb Molu. They know that the man behind the door has a relationship with the woman who has disappeared with her two children in Rødovre. They know the man is at home, but no one answers the door. When they finally get access, the police detectives quickly grab him, but he's agitated and aggressive. While the man has been taken into questioning, at the police station, two of the officers searched the house for evidence. The day after the horrific discoveries in the property in Rødovre, police sought out the woman's boyfriend, Peter Lundin. The suspicion against him grew when it became clear he was the last person who had been seen with the woman and her two children. When police investigated his home, they found, among other things, the missing woman's passport cut to pieces. It reinforced the suspicion that they were not on holiday and had left the country. It was decided that Lundin should be arrested and charged in connection to their disappearance. He pleaded not guilty to the charges, but the judge chose to imprison him in a way because of the many findings in the house. Outside the courthouse, Lundin's father appeared on the day. He told the press about his son and that Lundin had been jailed in the United States for the killing of his mother. At the time, he was convicted of manslaughter. That part of Peter Lundin's life is a whole story in itself. Meanwhile, the crime scene investigators were busy looking for more evidence. They examined both the house in Rødovre where the woman and her two children lived, and the accused's home in the city called Morlev, and they also went to Peter Lundin's father's home. One of the crime scene investigators working on the case was Bent Hytholm Jensen. My crime scene investigators called me and uh, told me that they have found some very interesting thing at the father's uh, apartment. They needed some uh, extra equipment, so I packed all the things and uh, I took a car and I went out to the apartment and they showed me what they have found. They have found a cardboard box containing an ankle grinder, an axe and a lot of other things. Earlier we had identified some marks on the floor out in the garage, probably made by an axe and some marks probably from an ankle grinder or a disc from an ankle grinder. Quickly we identified some blood or something that reacted as blood on the ankle grinder. On the top of the axe had been a plastic hanger, one of those things that sits on top of supplies when you go to a supermarket uh, or a supply store. A piece of that plastic hanger was broken off and was missing. When I saw that, I called one of my CSI officers and I said to him to go to the garage because I will guarantee you there's a broken plastic hanger somewhere in that garage. 
and it didn't take long before they they phoned me and said that they had found a piece of the plastic hanger at the bottom of a box. The plastic hanger from the garage fitted 100% on the head of the axe. Besides that, we also found some remains of concrete on the blade of the axe as well as some blood. While the crime scene investigators were looking for convincing evidence, the police faced a major question. Where were the three missing people? Were they all dead? And was it their blood and tissue the crime scene investigators had found in the house? The tissue samples had to be tested for DNA. But in Denmark, we do not have a database of DNA from everybody, so the police had to resort to other methods. Since the late 1970s, health professionals in Denmark have been doing tests on newborn babies. The test involves collecting a small sample of blood from the newborn to secure their DNA and check for specific diseases. Test results are kept on records reserved for the Danish Health Authority and cannot, as a rule, be used by the police. However, in extreme cases, it has been possible to obtain access to these records with a court order. In this case, we obtained access to get DNA on the missing boys. With help from the records, we were able to conclude that the DNA we had found at the crime scene matched the two boys. Fortunately, the woman had had surgery not long before the murders, And with information from that surgery, we were able to conclude that her DNA was also present at the crime scene. Today, we have a database of known criminals, which is far, far bigger than it was back then. However, we still have no DNA database for ordinary citizens. I can understand the legal aspects of it from a citizen's point of view, but as a former investigator, I have missed a national DNA database on several occasions. Seeing as we actually have a database that dates back to the 70s, I think it makes sense to be able to set up some more lenient rules for access. I don't think you should have a DNA database that you can use in minor cases like shoplifting, theft or something like that. But I do think that it would be reasonable to be allowed to access a DNA database in cases that involve murder, attempted murder or rape, like for sexual crime investigations. By not using the information that's already in our system, you're just protecting the perpetrators. I'm convinced that if you looked at all the DNA that's been obtained from newborns dating back to the late 70s until today, and you checked that against the traces that have been secured from crime scenes or from victims of rape or other crimes, we would definitely solve some of our unsolved cases. I think it's thought-provoking that there are perpetrators committing serious crimes in Denmark that could be arrested and prosecuted if you could just have access to these records. So it's worth a political discussion. At the Institute of Forensic Medicine, they were assigned to test the blood and tissue found in the house in Rødov. Forensic pathologist Hans Peter Hågen was one of those who worked at the Institute at the time. In many autopsies, we take samples for microscopic examination. And you can say a lot about diseases, uh, for example, but also what kind of tissue it is. Muscles, bones, liver, kidneys and spleen, heart and brain and so on look different on the microscope. Therefore, we can say which organ it is and if there are some diseases we can also say this is pneumonia this is lung cancer and so on on such a small piece well 
it depends on how big it is uh, when we take out tissues during the autopsies, but they are bigger pieces. It can be half a centimeter thick and a few square centimeters wide on the surface. Here, the, uh, we were talking about tiny pieces, the size of a pin or the size of half a match head. It's also studded in the microscope, and you have to remember it is enlarged about four to five hundred times, and then you can suddenly say something more about it. So your colleagues at the forensic genetic departments tested DNA to identify the tissue parts. How does that work? It's done by scraping the dried blood up, and then it's cleaned by the geneticists in laboratories. They find what may be DNA contained in cell nuclei. In blood, it's only the white blood cells that have cell nuclei, and the red blood cells don't have cell nuclei, so they have no DNA in them. The DNA from the white blood cells is then isolated with various laboratory procedures. And there you have, in your very small test tube, a tiny bit of pure DNA. Then it is put into a big, fine and expensive machine and examined further. And stuff comes out on the computer screens with a DNA profile. That's what is most important. And the order on the individual building blocks of the DNA. There are some amino acids that have to sit in a certain order And it's so different from person to person that no one are alike. If you then have something to compare with, let's say you have debris taken from the toothbrush, because when you brush your teeth, you also brush the gums and the cells rub off on the toothbrush. So if you compare DNA that bumps out in the same way, well then, that's the person. Now the investigators knew that the blood and tissue from the house matched the three missing people. And they expected that they had all been killed. The investigators went to the suspect, hoping he would admit to what had happened to the woman and her two boys. But Lundin clearly had no intention of pleading guilty to triple homicide. At some point during the autumn, he actually admitted to unethical treatment of bodies, which meant that he admitted to the dismemberment of the bodies, but not the actual killing. He explained that after the get-together at the school, they had had a fight which resulted in him grabbing the woman by the throat. He had held on to her tightly until she became passive. However, the two boys had come to her rescue, trying to defend her by throwing themselves at him. So he gripped them by the throat as well, resulting in their deaths. Dennis had a hold of my hair. Wayne screamed like crazy. They were completely out of it. I couldn't think. It wasn't something I had planned. It just happened. This was the explanation given by Peter Lundin in court, according to the tabloid newspaper BT. After his explanation, the police decided to make a reconstruction of the crime. The crime scene investigators filmed the entire event, and the video lasted six minutes. The recordings were violent, as Lundin demonstrated how he one by one had broken the neck of the two boys 
and their mother. Detective Superintendent Jens Müller Jensen has participated in several reconstructions during his time at the Homicide Investigation Unit. One way of trying to establish what has happened at a crime scene is to perform a reconstruction. This is often done when the police, the accused, the accused defense, and maybe the prosecution disagree about what has happened. Or when you wish to clarify some details in order to establish that the explanation fits with reality. Usually you have crime scene investigators and forensic medical examiners present too. Occasionally explanations come forward that you as a police officer could question. Did it really happen that way? And then it's important that the accused gets the opportunity to show that it is in fact possible that it could have happened the way they explain. In this case, Lundin believed that he had held the three victims' necks in a special position which had caused them to stop breathing. So while they had died as a result, it was not deliberate and therefore could not be classified as murder. This became an essential point of the reconstruction, where he had to demonstrate how it had all happened. It was also one of the key points that skilled forensic medical examiners had to testify about in court. One of the conclusions of the chief medical witness was that he could not deny that it could have happened in one of the cases, but would rule out that it could have been an accident in all three cases. One of those who has seen the recordings from the reconstruction is crime scene investigator Ben Hytholm Jensen. Peter Lundin had been questioned several times almost every day since he has been arrested. At some point, he wanted to give a full confession. We got a call from the local police and they told us that they had acquired some life-size dummies. They needed someone to videotape the reconstruction of the crime. Two of my crime scene officers were sent out with a video camera to film the reconstruction, where Peter Lundin then demonstrated how he had broken the neck of the woman and the two boys. Can you try to explain exactly what happened in that video? When I saw the the reconstruction videotape afterwards, uh, it seemed to be very, very violent. Um, he had a very fast grip on, around the neck on the the dummy in, when he was demonstrated how he had done. And uh, the, the head fell off the, the dummy. So it was uh, something made a, a great impression. When Peter Lundin started talking to the police, he had an explanation. Whether it is the truth, only he knows. But he explained that he had dismembered their bodies in the garage at the house in Rodon. The first trash bags with body parts he threw into a waste shaft in Molu. And later he left more bags close to his father's residence. Six bags he threw at the curb in Rodon. The garbage men later told police they noticed a smell of decay, but they were so used to it in the summer heat that they didn't think any further of it. At the time they threw four of the bags into the car, but left two bags standing at the curb. A few days later, there were more stuffed bags at the roadside in front of the white-painted house, ready to be picked up. When you think three people have been murdered, dismembered, dumped and thrown away like garbage, forensic work can really be difficult. 
At the Institute of Forensic Medicine in Copenhagen, the forensic pathologist now had a difficult task in front of them. Hans Peter Hågen has been a forensic pathologist throughout his career and performed autopsies on thousands of corpses. He was also deeply involved in this case. Uh, I was contacted by the police who asked if we could assist in the search for the deceased. The police investigated everything that could resemble bones. Conveyor belts were set up at the city's garbage incinerator and people stood by the conveyor belt and sorted everything away before the waste was burned. They picked up everything that resembled bones. So all sorts of bones were separated out. I don't remember how many tons of waste they went through, but there were many. And that resulted in huge amounts of bones. And they all came to us where we then stood at the autopsy tables and examined the bones. There were bones in boxes, in baskets, in buckets, in sacks. And we started at one end and then bones out on the table. And then we looked at all of them trying to identify if these were human bones or animal bones. And never in my life I've seen so many cow bones and pig bones and sheep bones. But we weren't supposed to pay any attention to that. Our task was to look for human bones. Were there any human bones hidden in these huge masses of bones? We sorted and took out some bones that we suspected maybe could be human bones. But the rest just didn't look like human. The bones we were left with were then examined by our forensic anthropologists. These are people who have a special understanding of the skeleton and who have worked with us in identification cases. They also work a lot with archaeologists in Viking heritage and such on. The anthropologists then examined the few bones we were unsure of and found no human bones. We examined bones day in and day out for more than two weeks and found no human bones. It was a lot of work that resulted in zero, zip and nothing. How was that feeling? Well, it was different. Because as I said, I have never in my life seen so many bones and it seems like it was mountains of bones we were going through. And it turns out that lots of meat is eaten in the Copenhagen area. No doubt about that. The police also found bones that had been dug down around in the parks. So they also had unearthed bones. And it was not bones from old graves like plague cemeteries or anything like that from the old days. But bones that were recently buried. So you can say, well... But then it's just a dog that has dug a meat bone. I mean, a dog doesn't dig a cubic meter of bone into the ground. So there were a lot of things that were a little weird. But we didn't find a single human bone. We were standing there sorting bones day in and day out. So yeah, it was something special. Why do you think it made such a big impression on us Danes with that case? The guy kills a woman. That itself is bad. But he's not the first. But he also kills two children. The thing about killing children, to kill at all is terrible. But children, 
They are always innocent. So are many victims too. But children are always. So when children come into the picture, most of us react emotionally. And then you don't forget it. Jens Müller Jensen's colleagues at the local police searched long and hard for the remains of the woman and the two children. Everything was done to find them, or just small traces of them. In this case, we searched high and low, in forests and in lakes, and in areas far from the crime scene but close to the suspect's residence. We thoroughly searched many, many places for corpses or partial remains. Because an investigation is two-sided. First of all, you want to find out what has happened and to find someone who should be punished. However, it's just as much about giving the relatives a body to bury so they can find peace of mind. Sitting there in front of three empty caskets was a strange feeling. Honestly, I felt foolish. It was so wrong. We were there to say goodbye, but there was nothing to say goodbye to. The caskets were empty. This is what a family member of the three murdered said to me when I interviewed him for the newspaper Extrablad late in 2017. Exactly as Detective Superintendent Jens Müller Jensen just mentioned, the family could not get peace of mind as their loved ones couldn't be laid to rest. Though the remains were still to be discovered, the case was ready to go to court after months of investigation. The light is dimmed and the video is about to start in the courtroom. Jurors, the families and the professionals see how the muscular tall man with long dark hair and a full beard throws himself over the doll. They are both lying on the bedroom floor and he grabs the head from behind with his right arm while his left hand holds the doll's forehead. With a hard twist, he turns the head around and back. The video is a harsh insight into the actions of a killer. In one of the shots in the video, you see that his actions are so violent that the head of the doll falls off. On the 5th of March 2001, the trial against Peter Lundin began. The case was followed closely by both press and curious citizens. Peter Lundin was accused of triple murder and unethical treatments of bodies. Former prosecutor Medigrit Stey explains about the circumstances surrounding such a public and well-known case. What happened in court was that Lundin denied being guilty of intentionally killing the woman and her two sons. Lundin actually did admit that he was responsible for the death of the three, but he denied that he killed them deliberately or that he in any way had planned their death. As a prosecutor, this is something you hear from time to time from a defendant in a murder case. So it is a prosecutor's job to lift the burden of proof Is this something that may have been planned? Is it a case where it occurs spontaneously? Or did the defendant realize that his action could kill another human being? In addition, Lundin confessed having dismembered the corpses and having disposed them, and also that he had stolen some valuables from the home of the victims. How does a prosecutor prepare for such a big case where there is much attention in media like this one? 
Well, a case like this involves many months of a police investigation, including the hours of interrogations of Lundin, in order to dig down into all the details of this case. When the police conduct these interrogations, they typically start with more open questions to make the defendant explain his version of the case. Then the investigator will start asking about details in order to find gaps and weak spots in the explanation. All interrogations will be written down in police reports and are part of the case. In a murder case, there will usually be statements from the medical examiners. Since there were no bodies in this case, there were no such statements, which is very unlikely. However, there were lots of forensic statements and witness statements that the prosecutor had to be familiar with. On top of that, the prosecutor must know all details of the defendant's explanation. As a prosecutor, you must know all the details of these reports as well as all the technical investigations. So for the prosecutor, there's a lot of reading to do in order to be prepared to go to work. If the prosecutor succeeds in getting the defendant to open up in court, the prosecutor can let him talk and talk and talk and explain as detailed as possible. That way, a well-prepared prosecutor have the opportunity to display the defendant's lack of credibility. It must be absolutely outrageous to look at a man when you know that he killed his mother, a woman and two children, four people, and three of them he dismembered. What is it like to look at these types of people in their eyes? It is challenging, but of course a thrilling challenge for a prosecutor whose job it is to help society solving the case. Justice must be done, and the prosecutor's job is to present the evidence in court so that the judges can make the right decision on whether to acquit or convict the defendant, and in the latter case, reach the appropriate penalty. To encounter a person who has committed such a horrendous crime, the prosecutor has to be professional and calm. As a prosecutor, you sometimes meet people who are extremely eloquent and some might call it a bit manipulative, but you have to try to deal with it through your preparations of the hearings. In this case, there are two children and one adult woman who have been murdered. What should a penalty for something like that be? According to the Danish Criminal Code, the punishment for committing a murder will be from five years up to life imprisonment. The point of reference for a murder is 12 years imprisonment, but then there can be aggravating or mitigating circumstances, meaning that the sentence can be either higher or lower. Aggravating circumstances could be if the murder was extraordinary barbaric and the victim was suffering, whereas mitigating circumstances could be if the victim had been abusing the perpetrator for years. In the Danish legal system, we don't double the sentence if you commit the crime two times. Carrying a loaded gun in a public area will give you two and a half years in prison, whereas carrying two guns will not give you five years, but there will be a discount, so to speak. In the Lundin case, it didn't take many seconds for the prosecutor, who, by the way, was the district attorney himself, to claim lifetime imprisonment. And I must say it is quite obvious that in a case like this, where we're not just talking about one murder, but three it must be the highest possible sentence that should be utilized. 
So all of the judges and the jurors agreed with the prosecutor and sentenced Lundin to life imprisonment. In this specific case, a custodial sentence was also discussed. What is a custodial sentence? A custodial sentence is a sentence without time limit and will often be served in a secured institution under psychiatric supervision, but can actually also be served in a normal prison. It is only in the most aggravating cases that a custodial sentence is at stake, typically where the defendant is found guilty of murder, rape or abuse of children, and it is given to perpetrators who are not insane but still has some kind of mental breach, so to speak. A custodial sentence is based on an examination conducted by a psychiatric forensic in order to ascertain whether, in the future, the defendant will be at risk to other people's life or health. If the court finds that the defendant will be dangerous to the surroundings, even after having been locked up for years, then the defendant will get a custodial sentence in order to ensure the health and life of others. Being able to make its assessment, the court has the reports from the psychiatrist, and furthermore, the court will not only look upon the current crime, but would also take into consideration if the defendant has committed crimes before. If the perpetrator gets an indefinite custodial sentence, the question of getting out on probation cannot be discussed before a forensic psychologist has evaluated that the perpetrator is no longer in danger to the society. This evaluation can be demanded by the perpetrator to be brought to the court already after five years, but in average, a custodial sentence will last for up to 14 years. There has been an increasing use of custodial sentence over the past 10 to 12 years. Why the use of such sentences has increased is hard to say. However, it is a fact that in the late 90s, it was only very few people in Denmark who received a custodial sentence. But ever since, the use of these sentences has increased. You could say that this is an expression of the severity of the crime because it's an indefinite punishment and you don't know when you will be released, which is very stressful. As a journalist, I have interviewed many who have been receiving very long prison sentences, life imprisonment, for example. And from that, I can understand the worst part of it is the uncertainty of when you will be released. Because life imprisonment might as well be life imprisonment. There are a lot of people who think that life imprisonment is 16 years and that's it. But it's not. You do not know if you will be released after 12 or 14 years or even 30 years, which can be mentally stressful for those who received these penalties. But life imprisonment is actually for life. We can confirm that, right? Yes, if sentenced to lifetime imprisonment, there is a risk that you will never get released but end your days in prison. However, in average, lifetime sentences last for around 16 years, but still, there is no guarantee that you will be released on probation, and this uncertainty makes an indefinite sentence very stressful, as so is a custodial sentence. In the Peter Lundin case, he was given life imprisonment and he is still in prison today. He has now been close to 20 years behind bars. What would it take for him to be released? 
Because Lundin was found guilty of killing three people, it is no surprise that he has been serving longer than the average for convicts with a lifetime imprisonment sentence. According to the law, Lundin can apply for probation, and in order to find out whether it's safe to release him or he will be dangerous to society, he will be evaluated by forensic psychiatrists and the probation service, and the police will also be heard about this question. Then the report will be presented to the court, who will make the final decision about release or not. You can ask the question, which is worse, lifetime imprisonment or a custodial sentence? Well, it's hard to say because lifetime imprisonment basically can be for the rest of your life, and in principle, so can a custodial sentence. But there are some mechanisms which make a difference when it comes to the chances of getting released on probation. With a custodial sentence, you can apply for release already after having served five years. Whereas having a lifetime imprisonment sentence, you can't apply for release until 12 years at the earliest. And also with a custodial sentence, the evaluation from the forensic psychiatrist will carry greater weight than at a lifetime imprisonment sentence, where the court will focus more on law enforcement considerations. I have been told that the district attorney went after lifetime imprisonment for Lundin because the district attorney was very aware that when sometime in the future it would be relevant to decide if Lundin should be released or not, the reports from the psychiatrist would stand more central if Lundin had a custodial sentence than a lifetime sentence. And rumors say that the district attorney was afraid that Lundin would be able to sweet-talk, so to say, the psychiatrist because he was known being extremely manipulative. So therefore, the district attorney preferred that Lundin was sentenced to lifetime imprisonment. I don't think the public or the people involved will ever forget this horrible case. Nor should they. Personally, I have spoken to relatives of Lundin's victims who will never forget Peter Lundin, nor those who lost their lives because of him. Thanks to crime scene investigator Bent Hytholm Jensen, forensic pathologist Hans Peter Hagen, detective superintendent Jens Müller Jensen, and lawyer Mette Gritsdage for your stories. Death in Denmark is produced by Bauer Media and True Crime Agency and has been brought to you by Crime Monthly Magazine. If you enjoyed this story, please tell your friends and rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And get your true crime fix in Crime Monthly Magazine, out in shops now. Next week, the body in the butcher's tub. <laughs>